Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have a lot to tell you about today, as we try to do every day. But before we get to uh, those bigger, longer-term stories, there are a few other uh, stories, issues in the headlines that we wanted our listeners to know about. First of all, what eyewitnesses are calling a massive explosion has rocked the Saratoga Hotel near the Capitol building in central Havana, Cuba. The explosion took place just a few minutes ago, maybe 10 minutes ago, and we don't know the cause. Initial reports say that bystanders are pulling the injured out of the rubble and that ambulances are converging on the area. Our friend and colleague Jackie Lukman is in Havana right now, as are several of our friends from Code Pink, all to celebrate the May Day holiday. We're trying to get in touch with them and we'll let you know more as soon as we learn it. Mm hmm. This is, I mean, this really does look like a huge explosion. Huge. It sheared off the front of the building. Yeah. Obviously, vehicles nearby look like they were destroyed. And we'll we'll see what we learn in the next two hours about what it might have been. Yeah. Let's keep our fingers crossed that it was something innocent, a gas leak, you know, an Mm. accident, a boiler, something. And that somehow nobody was in that hotel. That's right. That is right. Well, the latest jobless numbers are in this morning here in Washington, and they show that the economy added 428,000 new jobs and unemployment held steady at 3.6%. We are almost at the number of jobs that we had before the pandemic began. We'll probably reach it in the next two or three months. Personal income rose 5.5%, which on the face of things is good news, but yeah, right. It uh, it's less than the rate of inflation, probably significantly less. Yeah, and I do always wish some the the focus on the numbers of jobs created. Yeah, would include something about the kinds of jobs and the exactly kinds of pay. Right. I mean, great, it is great that the, the economy is creating more jobs, but if a lot of them are, you know. Driving for for Instacart, yes, for you know negative two dollars an hour if you don't get tipped. Precisely, not as terrific. Yeah. Precisely. And they never tell us what kinds of jobs are being created. No. Which you know, would like maybe is, be, I mean, they tell you by sector, I Yeah, guess. by sector. But then also, you know, retail jobs. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We talk a lot about Elon Musk on this show, especially about his recent purchase of Twitter. Well, it turns out that Musk is active elsewhere, uh, too. He announced back in February that he was sending his Starlink terminals to Ukraine so that the Ukrainian military would be able to maintain Internet connectivity, even if the Russians were to destroy the telecom infrastructure. As it turns out, this was not just a gift from the goodness of Elon Musk's heart. No. No. It was a major purchase from USAID, the Agency for International Development. And it turns out that USAID paid $1,500 for each terminal. That's a total of $2 million. And it's in addition to the $10 million worth of terminals and data that Musk had already sent. Are you telling me that Elon Musk would take credit for something? Not entirely philanthropic or not entirely of his own invention and design. Wild. Imagine. And you know what else he does that really (laughs) bugs the daylights out of me? What? Is he purports to be Mm self-made. And he's not self-made. You know, he's relied very heavily on government handouts and government investments in his technology. Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge the guy, you know, his successes. I think Tesla's fantastic. The idea of Tesla is fantastic, right? 
But, you know, don't pretend that you're the second coming of Thomas Edison when it was really the government that gave you all this stuff. Yeah, that facilitated this, that incentivized. I mean, Mm -hmm. Tesla wouldn't have survived without the, the, like, electric vehicle uh, write-offs and tax incentives. Yeah. Exactly. Socialism for me, but not for the. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. People still seem to be going nuts on airplanes, uh, despite the fact that the airlines and federal law enforcement are cracking down on churlish behavior. A passenger on a United Airlines flight in Chicago yesterday was taken into custody when, as soon as the plane landed, he opened the emergency door and walked out onto the wing. Now, why? What would possess you to do something like that? I mean, it sounds like it could be fun. Is the only thing I can think of. And also, you just cannot bear to wait in another line and not one more single line in your entire life. But he hasn't said, but that would make sense to me or more sense than any other reason, I guess. I mean, I mean the, both the are wing, bad reasons. Yeah, they're both bad reasons. And the wing is too high to jump off of. You're going to get hurt, right? It's a big plane. But it would feel cool to stand on it. And apparently that's <laughs> what he was doing. Reason. They, they got the him down yeah. and they arrested yeah. him. Uh, he never said why he did it, but he was quickly taken in into custody and charged with a felony count of interfering with a flight crew. Wow. Felony. Felony. Of course, everything's a felony these days. I guess, yeah. Meanwhile, passengers, you'll like this one, Mm -hmm. passengers on a Virgin uh, Airways flight from London to New York were furious when the plane had to turn around over the Atlantic and return to London when the pilot admitted that he never had gotten a pilot's license. Sorry, I see. Pilot's license... (laughs) Qualifying him to fly an Airbus 330. Yes, yes. So presumably he knew how to fly other models, but Some he hadn't gotten plane. his like, you know, Airbus right. 330 he just paperwork. Slipped, he slipped through the cracks. What? He never bothered. Why? Also, why admit it mid-flight? Unless unless he was doing something wrong in the cockpit and, and the co-pilot no, no. was like, hey, buddy, what, no, you, what that, you doing? Why'd that, you push that? That wasn't it at all. Okay. It was actually very interesting. He just kind of casually mentioned to the pilot, he was the co-pilot. He mentioned to the pilot, hey, you know, I'm not even licensed to fly this plane. I never got the license. And the pilot said, well, wait a minute. I'm not a licensed training pilot, so I can't teach you to fly this plane. Mm-hmm. And so they had to turn it around and fly back to London. God, people just do just like tick the regulatory boxes <laughs> for the love of God. Also, what's going on at Virgin Airways that they would assign him? Seriously. To be co- and they apologized and they said oh, well, that's nice. th- that he just slipped through the cracks and everybody had seen him around. He's a pilot on smaller planes and they just assumed when they he was wearing had his name on the hat. schedule. He yeah, he's got the hat, with some wings the on scrambled it. eggs on yeah, the hat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah good wow. luck with that. Uh, you may remember an incident five years ago when a, I, I remember it. I remember actually posting it on Facebook mm-hmm. uh, when a Loveland, Colorado police officer by the name of Austin Hop roughly arrested a 73 year old woman who was suffering uh, from dementia. She had walked out of a, a out of a store, a Walmart, to the best of my recollection, with fourteen dollars worth of merchandise and then began picking flowers in a field. When Hop stopped her, she was too. She wasn't. Yeah, to know she, that she what, was. That what she had, had done was wrong. Dementia, right? Yes. Right. She yeah. had dementia. She was unable to understand yeah. what she had done wrong. Um, and when he tried to stop her, she turned around and began to slowly walk away. She was actually looking to pick more flowers. So he tackled her and he rescued her. He wrestled her rather to the ground 
He sat on her and cuffed her behind her back. Through the entire event, Hop is heard laughing at her nasty on his it. body cam. And it was only after the video was released a year later that prosecutors took a look at the case. And finally, this past March, just a couple of months ago, Hop took a plea to second degree assault. Well, yesterday he was sentenced to five years in prison. And he was actually lucky to get five years because what he was charged with, first degree assault in March, carried a mandatory minimum of eight years and a maximum of 10 years. Um, you know, the, the sad thing is to me, I mean, this is a sad story. This poor woman had no idea what was going on. What's sad is that this happens every single day. Every day, people are disrespected and manhandled and roughed up by the cops, and the cops get away with it. It just so happened that someone took it upon themselves to release this video, and justice was finally served. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've got a couple of things yeah, going I just on. Wanted, I wanted to mention again, you know, we, we mentioned that Chris Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, yeah, was uh, addressing fan. the Senate Budget Committee yesterday. And, uh, you know, much was made of his performance there, which I think was was great, you know, like a quite a trajectory for Chris Smalls. There was a little battle between not battle, but a, a bit of back and forth between him and Lindsey Graham, you know, oh, Lindsey Graham over how effective mechanisms are to challenge illegal acts by corporations when it comes to union busting or trying, you know, trying to prevent organizing and you know, Lindsey Graham said, well, no, you have all these things, these these pathways, uh, you know, th these channels that are there for precisely these occasions. And Chris Malls said, yeah, but they don't work. And <laughs> Graham said, well, that's that's your opinion. And he said, that's a fact. So it was oh, nice to have Chris good. Malls up there, um, you know, it, reminding these senators on this committee that it is the workers that make these corporations run. And, that, you know, the corporations are not doing anybody a favor by giving them those jobs. That it is the other way around. He also met the president and uh, tweeted that, you know, Joe Biden had said Smalls had gotten him in trouble, which was, you know, cute. But at the same time, and this is pointed out by the, the lever, uh, the Biden administration reawarded a $10 billion federal contract to Amazon. Though at the same time, you have Chris Smalls there saying, hey, we need to pass the PRO Act. Uh, you know, we, we need... Th these mechanisms that we have mm -hmm. to sort of even the playing field when it comes to organizing, they right. are not working. Uh, at the same time, behind the scenes, you have Amazon being gifted uh, another $10 billion contract, despite Joe Biden's promise in 2020 to ensure federal contracts only go to employers who sign neutrality agreements committing mm -hmm. not to run anti-union campaigns. Right. Huh. So where's the consistency there? Exactly. It also sounds like I know we, we talked about this briefly yesterday, but the um, uh, amendment Bernie Sanders tried to introduce to that yes. China, the competes bill, that big China R&D investment bill uh, that, you know, uh, funds or these tax incentives not go to companies that want to outsource jobs yes. or not go to companies that, you know, block organizing efforts on their campuses handily voted down by the Senate, you know. So I don't want to act as though this can only ever be photo ops and window dressing. Mm -hmm. I just want to say it is important to watch what's going on behind the scenes as it is to watch the sort of spectacle of who is invited Indeed. to to testify. Indeed. Right? Yes. So, yeah, Amazon's union busting and being rewarded by the administration that is, you know, promised to be for the workers and is now now after, you know, 
the Amazon Labor Union won its first organizing effort, well, its second time around at its first organizing uh, site without any help from anybody, really, right. without support yes. from, from sitting members of Congress, without no. support from the administration. Now that they have shown what they can do, okay, everybody wants to, you know, everybody you wants their the photo op with Chris Smalls, Absolutely. which is understandable, which is great, and he's right to get out in front of the cameras. But, you know, what they're doing behind the scenes also really matters. I couldn't agree more. The other uh, thing to note here is that I guess the U.S. Senate is going to vote again on the Women's Health Protection Act uh, on May 11th. Chuck Schumer said that, I believe, yesterday. They voted on it in February. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to assume that that would be different now this time around. And in fact, uh, Susan Collins said yesterday that she would vote against it. And the the belief is that Joe Manchin also is voting against it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also wanted to say in our discussions on abortion uh, on this show, you know, because I like to see U.S. policy, generally speaking, reflect the will of the majority. Right. And I find it useful to point out, you know, what Americans actually want when it comes to a lot of economic issues, when it comes to minimum wages, when it comes to health care reform or whatever. But, you know, there are also instances where something is morally correct. Something can be morally correct and, and not yet be the will of the people. And also, you know, as much as people don't like to contemplate uh, the idea of second trimester, you know, later term abortions, you know, if you are going to put some kind of limit on when you can have this health care or not, you are ultimately what that comes down to is deciding, well, there is a point in this process when the decision of the mother doesn't matter anymore. The decision of the person who is walking around outside in the world matters less That's right. than the one inside her. And I do think it is, you know, as much as we might find it sort of distasteful to contemplate the, the few instances of something happening later on in a pregnancy, it's a very slippery legal slope to be standing on to say, well, the, at this point, the, the life of the person carrying the pregnancy is not relevant, mm-hmm. right? At this mm-hmm. point, you are eclipsed. And so, you know, I, I, I think it is interesting to point out or, and to talk about like uh, American attitudes about abortion and what they actually are. But it doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that it is legally safe to decide on some kind of r- limit. Yes. You know what I mean? At least not in our current system. Yes. The other thing I wanted to point out, there was an interesting um, opinion piece in, in the Washington Post today by a, a doctor, an abortion provider, who said, I am I now that. getting trained to provide second term abortions because the result of, you know, if this draft opinion is what ends up being the final opinion and abortion access is kicked back to the states, again, with the idea that state legislatures actually reflect the will of their populations, right. which I think is in question. Yeah, dubious. at the very least. That's right. Um, you know, we, we will see more second trimester abortions than first trimester abortions as women have to raise money to take time off work, to get out of town, to travel, to arrange people to help them in secrecy. You know, and she points out uh, 90 percent of abortions in America occur in the first trimester. Right. So you want to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Make it available. You know, make it available, make it affordable as as early yes. as possible, because what this will do, of course, will, uh, you know, 
suppose if your outcome is uh, fewer abortions overall and fewer abortions later in pregnancies, yes, this is going to have the opposite effect. There were a couple of other pieces, too, relative to this uh, this issue that I thought were very important. One is that uh, there's a move afoot now to make sure that abortion providers in states where abortions are legal will be able to mail uh, morning after pills to people in states that are outlawing or restricting abortion. That was number one. Number two, there was an incredibly controversial vote in a in a uh, state legislative committee in Louisiana yesterday. The vote was eight to two to classify abortions as homicide. And the chairman of the committee said that they know that it's probably unconstitutional and they don't care. Yeah, I mean, so this they're is... going to pass it into law that abortion is homicide and then they're going to arrest somebody for murder for and having an abortion. will come and challenge exactly. it. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, again, it wouldn't Disasters. be. And I know we have a guest coming up, but like we also should not even treat this idea of someone being arrested for a murder for having an abortion as though it is somehow novel. Right. right. Because you've already we have had uh, thousands of women who have been uh, been uh, seen criminal charges against them for miscarriages. Sure. Right. Manslaughter sure. because yeah. they have not, you know, created the the correct environment for their baby to thrive. Right. Which is mm-hmm. out, just absolutely sure. outrageous and capricious. We've talked about this on the show before with experts. Yes. But yeah, it, it will just be more of this. It's a matter of time it's, when it's going to be commonplace in America. And I'm not overstating this. I really believe this. It's going to be commonplace in America for there to be a knock at the door and there are going to be two cops there or two detectives there saying, hello, ma'am, sorry to bother you, but we're here to investigate your miscarriage. You know that that's coming next. So we are going to take a short break on that lovely note. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take that short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Yesterday, we told you that U.S. officials confirmed to the New York Times that they had provided intelligence to the Ukrainian government that allowed the Ukrainians to kill a dozen Russian generals, a number that military analysts called astounding. Today, the Washington Post is reporting that the U.S. also provided the intelligence that the Ukrainians used to sink the Russian Black Sea flagship Moskva. Meanwhile, in Mariupol, heavy fighting continues at the Azovstal Iron and Steelworks, where 500 people have been evacuated. A United Nations aid convoy is on the way to Mariupol, but so is a shipment of howitzer artillery systems from the German government. We're joined by International Affairs and Security Analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, welcome back. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, we're happy to have you uh, help set us straight here. Mark, there was one thing that occurred to me this morning um, as I was reading these articles. These recent reports seem to me to make the United States a belligerent in this conflict in the legal sense of the term. Supplies are one thing, but intelligence used to kill generals and sink ships, it seems to me, is another thing. What do you expect the Russian reaction to be to these revelations? 
Well, uh, from what the Russian government has been saying for some time now, uh, they believe that they're at war with NATO. Right. It, it seems uh, that they are. Yeah. I mean, that that is their position at this point. It may be a limited war in some areas, uh, in others, economics, cyber, it's, it, it's all out. But the U.S. is actively providing C4ISR. Uh, for Kiev at this point, command, control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and, and reconnaissance. That's a uh, a standard uh, for w- what I believe. I agree with you. It, it definitely not only in the position of the Russian government, but by anyone uh, who is being honest, uh, it, the U.S. Uh, and its you know allies, who who you know particularly uh, the United Kingdom and mm-hmm. some others are, are well in that mix as well, um, are, are belligerents in the conflict. And uh, I, I say, uh, are we actually in the opening days of World War III and we can't see the forest for the disinformation trees? I think we are. Well, that, that's a good question. Hey, and speaking of belligerents, the U.S. media yesterday ran a fascinating interview with Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, in which he said that he was surprised that the war had gone on so long. I was actually surprised to hear him say that. Uh, He also talked about the role that Belarus played in the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine. What he didn't respond to was the fact that that action also made Belarus a belligerent and subject to retaliation from Ukraine, as well as sanctions. The Ukrainians, of course, are in no position to respond or to to retaliate against the uh, the Belarusians. What do you foresee happening in the region in the future with Belarus or between Belarus and uh, and Ukraine? Do you see Belarus having problems in the U.N. or uh, being subject to uh, to sanctions? But I don't really see what problems Belarus could have in the U.N. I mean, Russia. And China still have veto uh, power, veto as permanent members of the Security Council. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I agree that Belarus. You know, however much they're they're trying to um, uh, play the tightrope uh, again, that uh, that 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 tightrope doesn't exist anymore. And um, Lukashenko, I agree, is is a party to this conflict to a degree. Um, certainly, one that would re- warrant retaliation uh, by the Kiev regime. Um, if they can, and they can't, uh, for fear that uh, Belarus would then send troops uh, into Ukraine. Right. There's constantly talk about this, and Kiev is constantly warning about it, and it hasn't happened, but it could happen. Now, Belarusian uh, military forces are, of course, uh, you know, not, they don't have uh, any actual combat experience, uh, you know, in <laughs> the the lives of, of of anyone who is in the Belarusian military and well before that, but they could be used, for instance, to hold territory mm. uh, and the like, uh, and in areas where uh, the Kiev regime doesn't have uh, much action. So I think eventually Belarus is going to be drawn into the conflict. I think wow. the conflict is already expanding into Transnistria. Uh, we've already uh, seen attacks in Trans- Transnistria, and the, the rhetoric is high on both sides. Yes. Transnistria is a breakaway region for for decades now from Moldova, uh, which would almost de facto bring Moldova at some degree into the conflict. And and I I think Belarus will be drawn as well. This is just going to to keep expanding. Wow. Uh, and it is actually within. The, the Kiev regime's interests to expand the conflict because 
if the conflict expands, then they have all the more leverage to uh, insist that NATO becomes directly involved rather than one flimsy proxy degree of separation uh, between between the U.S. and yeah. Russia at this point. Wow. Uh, so I, I think that's, uh, you know, definitely uh, in the cards for the future. Um, I read an interesting uh press release this morning, Mark, by the uh, UK, the UK Defense Ministry. They said that the Azovstal fighting is tougher than the Russians had expected, that they're having to spend more time there than they had anticipated, and that the fight there is interfering with their plans in Donbass. What are your thoughts? Do you think that's British propaganda, or are, are the Russians having to spend more time uh, in this uh this side fight than they had expected. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, the Azovstal steel plant, it's a, a several kilometer large facility. It's surrounded mm-hmm. by water on three sides and underneath it are an extensive labyrinth and network of tunnels and, uh, cold war era bunkers designed to be nuclear proof, right? Wow. It, it is a underground fortress. Right. Mm -hmm. Amazed. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no question that, you know, a a relatively small number of troops. And in this case, it is the ideologicals. It is the Azov state armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad with a a peppering of of, uh, uh, Kiev regime marine forces, uh, perhaps as well. And and some foreign guests, uh, evidently, uh, mercenaries and perhaps some others. Uh, but uh, they're in really poor condition. They're they're essentially, uh, as as far as anyone can tell, out of ammunition, running very short on food and water. Um, and Russia probably already would have flooded the tunnels with water if it wasn't for the fact that they have, uh, they claim to have uh, civilians under there. Some five hundred have been brought out so far. Mm -hmm. But at this point, they officially announced yesterday, and the Western media, of course, is not repeating it because it would really ruin the narrative. They are now offering to trade further civilians for food and water, which means they're not civilians, they're hostages, which, you know, is is long been presumed uh, by Azov. Um, So, um, but they are, they are no longer uh, really holding up any significant, you know, Russian forces. Uh, I mean, Russia has set up a perimeter force around it, and it's certainly being watched ar- around the clock. And uh, it just uh, in the last 48 hours, as the Azov forces attempted to take advantage of the opening of a humanitarian corridor to bring a couple hundred more civilians out, um, they attempted to set up firing positions on the surface again uh, within the steel factory. And uh, as soon as that humanitarian was closed, they were targeted and punished by a combination of of, uh, airstrikes, ballistic missile strikes uh, and artillery strikes. And then and then the Russian military forces went into uh, the factory to make sure that those nests were on the surface were cleared out. Uh, they are still not storming it mm-hmm. as, as the, the Kiev regime has, has tried to say, uh, but they're certainly not 
allowing them to get back into position on the surface. And it's at this point, relatively a small number of Russian troops is able to perform this. And the vast majority of those that were involved in Mariupol have already uh, headed on to a either directly into the uh, Donbass cauldron. Uh, around uh, Severodonetsk, Kramatorsk, and Slavyansk, or uh, they're quickly uh, refitting, uh, resupplying before moving into that conflict. So the idea that they are still holding, they, I agree that they did hold up uh, longer than Russia wanted to, but they are no longer doing that. Right. Hey, the New York Times today also reported that the Ukrainians had begun an offensive in Kharkiv and Izium and that the Russians hadn't expected that. I find that incredibly hard to believe. Can you explain to us what the two sides' intentions are up there in the north? We know that the Russians want to secure Luhansk and Donetsk in the east. They want to secure Crimea. The Ukrainians want to drive the Russians out completely if they can. Is it as simple as that, or are they fighting for territory that they can then negotiate over later? Yeah, I, 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 first of all, the Kiev regime has completely closed negotiations. They've said they're not interested. Right. They only I was going to ask you about that, actually. The, the capitulation mm-hmm. of Russia, mm-hmm. which is, which is just, you know, kind of like absurdity yeah. uh, at, at, at this point. And I think it's gone well beyond that. Um, Russia is going to have to take out the regime. That mm-hmm. it's, it's going to end that way, right? There is going to be a severe... Uh, partition, if not balkanization, of what was Ukraine at the end of this conflict. The only question is, where is that partition line? Is it just going to be Donetsk and Lugansk administrative regions as DNR, LNR? No, I don't think so. Russia has already made significant moves uh, in Kherson in the south. Uh, the move to the uh, ruble for currency, mm-hmm. um, street signs are being changed uh, away from the uh, the World War II era neo-Nazis that they were um, uh, 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 rechanged to, to to glorify them in the last eight years mm-hmm. as, as part of the denazification uh, and so forth. Uh, they, they've made significant rooms and there's constant talk about a referendum being held in Kherson uh, similar to Donetsk and Lugansk, and that that would be the balkanization of Ukraine. And I don't think it's just going to stop with Kherson. I think the same thing is going to happen for at the least all of eastern Ukraine from Odessa to Kharkov. Um, but it is probably going to have to continue further than that, because as long as the West keeps shoveling money and weapons right. uh, into the regime in Kiev and they refuse to negotiate, uh, then Russia will have to keep taking more. And I think this could go on for years. I think this yeah. could be a, a year long, and not just weeks, months. I, I think it could go on for years. There was a piece uh, that uh, Michelle uh, sent me this morning from Ukrainian Pravda. And it said that uh, Ukraine's Pravda, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and it said that uh, that there was a possibility of talks between Zelensky and Putin. It didn't say where, but that possibility went away when Boris Johnson visited Ukraine, and it was because Boris Johnson uh, informed Zelensky of Russian atrocities that he had been unaware of. He had provided this proof of Russian atrocities, and now there's not going to be any uh, talks. Uh, is there any truth to that at all? Were there going to be uh, talks I, in the first place? I, I don't believe so. No. I, I, I think 
that, uh, you know, uh, uh, talks were uh, sounding each other out. And once it became clear to the Kiev regime, the amount of support, uh, again, via weapons, via uh, ever, ever increasing, you know, uh, uh, types of weapons, uh, uh, we're already up into self-propelled howitzers um, and, and they're resuscitating talk of uh, fighter jets um, and uh, the, the money supply, um, the U.S., announced uh, $33 billion, which is half the budget, yearly budget of the U.S. State Department, just mm-hmm. from now until September. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's just it. And they've already given them $4 billion just this year till now. Uh, so, um, I mean, we're talking absolutely uh, insane amounts of taxpayer dollars uh, being spent yeah. on this. And so far, I mean, they're, they're trying to play down Russia's, uh, you know, military um, advances as, oh, they've yes. stalled out and they're only moving a few kilometers a day forward. They're moving a few kilometers a day forward right now in the east in, where the bulk of the Ukrainian regular military mm-hmm. has built fortifications with U.S. Uh, NATO guidance for the last eight years, mm-hmm. reinforced concrete fortifications, several meters thick, you know, everything they have left in terms of armored vehicles and artillery. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is serious and it is getting pounded into the dust by Russian artillery at this point. And the Ukrainians themselves are reporting that their ability to return fire is like uh, three per 300. Wow. <laughs> so um, it's uh, and uh, a few, uh, a, a couple uh, dozen U.S. self-propelled howitzers that have to travel 600 miles across all of Ukraine, where Russia is now destroying the electrical substations that power their electric trains, uh, and subjected to, to, to Russian air power uh, and and uh, missile strikes along the way. No, I mean Russia is destroying some 30 to 40. Uh, artillery uh, pieces uh, and uh, multiple launch rocket systems a day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I mean, so I mean, maybe that's two or three days worth, uh, if 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 that's what it took. That's not going to change the course of this conflict. It's just providing more target practice uh, for the Russian military at this point. Uh, Mark, we've talked a lot on the show about gas supplies for Europe. Uh, now that that there are such heavy sanctions on Russian gas. The New York Times said today that Europe simply cannot replace the gas lost to sanctions. Okay, the, the, there are no Russian sanctions. There are no sanctions on Russian gas. No. Well, uh, the, of course, the, but policy uh, yeah, decision yeah. to not buy Russian gas. Uh, the Qataris can't do it. The Egyptians can't do it. The, the Europeans are just going to have to buy this gas from the Russians. Um, okay. First of all, the EU has not made any decision to stop Russian gas because they can't. They can't. It doesn't exist. The only one. The only one that has. They're talking coal, right? And they pushed that back by six months. They're talking oil by the end year, and they've already given exemptions to three countries on that. And Shell and the International Atomic Energy Agency are warning them: don't do that because the world can't make up for uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that market loss, right? It's, it's some, it, it's only going to increase prices. It's the world, uh, there's no excess capacity to provide that. And the, no one is even talking about gas. Poland has stopped importing Russian gas, yeah. quote unquote, 
but they're just getting it from Germany. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's just it's going into, uh, you know, it's being uh, put into, uh, you know, storage facilities where 10 percent Norwegian gas and 10 percent gas from from uh, North Africa is added into the mix mm -hmm. with the majority of Russian gas. And suddenly it's magically no longer Russian, right. at least. What, that's what the pol Polish, polit you know, politicians tell their their domestic audience. Uh, but it, the Poles are still buying Russian gas. Like everyone that needs gas in Europe, right, which is the majority, yes, uh, are buying Russian gas, and there is no plan yet to stop buying Russian gas. And and that was my question: Is there a plan? You know, it, no. There's, okay, there's, yeah, that that actually makes there, the most sense to not me. Not only that, there's no plan to stop buying Russian oil. Right. Even. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, again, uh, Shell and the International Atomic Energy Agency are now warning, you know, just on oil, much less gas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which, which theoretically the EU might be able to survive a little bit less on. And they're already talking that Germany, may, uh, if if that is the case that they seriously try to go without Russian oil by the end of the year, they're talking there will be uh, uh, gasoline shortages mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in Germany and, and so on. And their factories will have to shut down. And I mean, they would like to, but they can't. I mean, it, this is the thing about being locked in an, an energy relationship. The, yes. Both the consumer and the producer are dependent on each other. And they both at this point want to decouple. But that decoupling is some time away yet. Uh, the Japanese prime minister, Mark, said today that he actively fears a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which would plunge the entire region, maybe even the world into war. He believes that the Chinese will take advantage of the fact that the U.S. and the Europeans are preoccupied with Ukraine and uh, and that war is on the horizon. But there's no military indication that this will happen at any point in the near future. Over the longer term, though, is this something we should be worried about? OK, let, let's be clear. First of all, Taiwan is part of China. I mean, the Japanese government re re recognizes that the U.S. Sure. government has recognized that for decades, yep. the one China policy. Right. What, what we're talking here is that China may at some point no longer accept the separatism that the U.S. and Japan and others are promoting to try to separate Taiwan from China. Um, and I agree that that is absolutely something that's going to happen within the next 10 years. And the more weapons that the U.S. keeps piling onto Taiwan, uh, the more China feels it needs to uh, up that date. Uh, but, um, you know, we are already at a point where China feels that they are military capable of that. Uh, they just want to be more sure. Um, and yes, there, there absolutely more than likely is going to be a, uh, a U.S.-China uh, military confrontation in the Straits of Taiwan or in the South China Sea, most likely both within uh, probably the next 10 years. Uh, and the U.S. military planners have been talking about that and that window for at least the last 10 years, yeah. and that, that the clock is ticking down to that. And what they're afraid of is that China has the, the military advantage at this point yeah. due to the proximity. Of course, the U.S. is fighting on the other side of the world, effectively. And that is why the U.S. pulled out of the short intermediate range nuclear forces treaty with Russia, because they want to put land-based missiles 
uh, in uh, Guam, and uh, they, they want to put them in South Japan and some other locations out there to close what they see as a land-based missile gap uh, for this confrontation, military confrontation off of China's coast that they know is coming. Okay, well, thank you, Mark Sloboda. That was the voice of Mark Sloboda, who is an international affairs and security analyst. He joined us from Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come right back with our next guest. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And, you know, I, I had talked about wanting to do a sort of uh, tribal court battles roundup. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason for that is just because I think I think keeping an eye on the, the details of these different individual fights between tribes and tribal governments and the U.S. government, you know, reinforces our understanding of this, the larger pattern. And so, you know, even though it is hard to find details on some of these cases, I think it's important to remember that this, you know, what we are looking at here uh, is a sort of process of oppression that wasn't uh, unfortunately concluded a long time ago, but is ongoing. And so here to try to sift through some of these details with us is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist and educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio in New York. John, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me again. So, you know, I I had encountered this collection of stories uh, over the past week or two about the legal interactions between tribal courts and U.S. government courts. And I, you know, as I said, I think it's important to just keep an eye on these different little, uh, you know, a little in the sense that they're not necessarily national battles um, fights. But it is also admittedly really hard to get details on some of these cases. And so one of them was a case in in Utah in which a tribal judgment against a non-native cattle feedlot operator for stealing tribal water was tossed with a, a U.S. court finding that the tribal court had no jurisdiction. We had a case of the U.S. government upholding a policy that doesn't allow tribes to reapply for federal recognition if their case is denied the first time. And we have this fight in California by a tribal government that's trying to prevent municipalities from taxing non-native people who have entered into contracts to lease native land, saying that undermines our sovereignty and our ability to raise money. And so all of these are specific, but I think they do sort of illustrate the, the arbitrary and racist application of law in U.S. court systems, you know, and, and to understand uh, the the way tribes are sort of hamstrung as they enter into some of these court battles. I also, of course, you know, think all this all these probably pale in comparison to the impact of overturning Roe v. Wade potentially and, and the effect that could have on on native people here. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I wanted to see what what of any of these uh cases got your attention and, and what they point out to you? Well, broadly, I don't know that it does, you know, that Roe v. Wade over, being overturned does overshadow some of these other things because okay. they they do have deeper impact. Um, and a lot of this goes down to just the flat out truth is that the United States refuses to acknowledge 
uh, native sovereignty. Mm -hmm. I mean, they they throw that word out there sometimes. They'll say tribal sovereignty this and tribal sovereignty that. But Mm -hmm. look, the reason the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples back in 2007 is because they didn't want the international community to to inspect the abuses that the United States does to, to native people. And in fact, they one of their biggest oppositions, and this and this came from the NSA, mm-hmm. that was that they opposed the applying the international definition of self determination to native territories. Mm-hmm. They wanted to use. They say, "Well, we use self determination. We mean internal self determination. We mean within the box that we give them." Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and 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 it isn't just the territory. talking about territorial boundaries. They mean the box of, uh, you know. Authority they have over the you know within their territories uh, with their people uh, and how it and how it relates to outside uh, outside their territory as well. Mm-hmm. They said they directly opposed the notion that native peoples should be able to assert sovereignty over their lands, mm-hmm. and, and that's from the NSA, and that's why they voted against it. Yeah, the the, the, the UN Declaration, and you know, of course, the UN Declaration. One of the things that, that it says in there is this notion of free, prior, and informed consent which the United States absolutely fails to meet. They don't ever uh, provide free prior information yes. <laughs> and then uh, you know, pursue consent on, on the things that they do. Mm-hmm. It's quite to the contrary. In these cases that you're talking about, especially the first one you're talking about, mm-hmm. y- you have to understand that these courts have said, just flat out said, that, you, that, that, they, that they represent the superior sovereign. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it relates to native people, I mean, they, they actually. I mean, I, I've talked to you before about the, the fact that when we talk about critical race theory, we don't p- apply it to, to to the native experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not detracting anything from uh, from you know the a lot of the information that the black community has raised about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. But in many of the laws that the, the United States passes, or in these rulings by these courts, they just flat out name us. I mean, they don't even beat around the bush. They don't. They don't say. Okay, we're going to create a redlining, but we're not going to actually write it down anywhere. We're not going to. We're going to prevent black people from uh, from achieving the benefits of the GI Bill, but we're not going to write it down. No, mm-hmm. they write it down. Yeah, <laughs> they, they just flat out say that 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 our notion of sovereignty is inferior to theirs, and and so that's why these courts can be so dismissive. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as it relates to things, even when it, it, within their law, when there's supposed to be certain protections like water rights. Mm-hmm. They will absolutely ignore our right to to make those arguments and 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 do it in in a venue that where where we you know stand to really gain something because what happens is and, and as you follow some of these water rights things you know what they end up doing is they just pay it off they, mm-hmm. just, they make a payment mm-hmm. so so everything reduces down to dollars and cents for the United States I mean look that's what they're going to do that's the plan for. For uh, residential schools, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know write checks. We're gonna we're gonna you know make payments. That's what Canada did. Yeah, you know even as people talk about reparations, like because of slavery and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. it, it still gets reduced to not um, really equality, but to well, how big is the check got to be? Right. 
Which is, I mean, it, you know, if, if you want to sort of detour into the, the area of corporate law, yeah, it's not actually intended to prevent the abuse from occurring or, you know, or, or change the behavior. It's just sort of like, oh, we'll just collect this check. And everybody knows the bank is going to go back to committing whatever fraud it was committing before. I want, I want to, um, since I want to keep talking about this, uh, this water case and I want to describe it uh, briefly for the people listening. This is the, the efforts of the Ute Indians on the, uh, Ure Reservation to keep their water. So this is an appeal. This fight has been going on for for something like seven years, I believe. And the appeal, according to the uh, court um, document, says it boils down to whether a tribal court has jurisdiction over a dispute between the tribe and a non-Indian about rights to water within reservation boundaries, but not on Indian land. And so you have to get into the history of how this reservation was created. This was a reservation that was created through a treaty with the Ute tribe in the 19th century. But then the U.S. government in in 1905, as I understand it, decided to open up land in the reservation to non-native people to buy. And then, of course, the, the U.S. government makes a bunch of promises regarding water rights and water provision to the tribe, which the tribe has been uh trying to get them to fulfill in the last decade, finally bringing suits and saying, hey, you said you said this was going to happen. You said you were going to do this. This hasn't happened. So now the tribe, through its courts, is trying to protect its resources, but being told you can't govern the actions of non-Indians on the carve-outs that we made from your reservation, and also we're not going to do it either, is what it looks like to me. Well, and see, what our experience is, especially in, in places like like you and other and so many other places you have because of those carbots we actually call it checkerboarding mm-hmm. where within what is considered the so-called reservation boundaries there are parcels that have been sold off yeah. you know and and this is the the kind of the the holdover and the longer term effect of some of the allotment act kind of thing because the, you know you by by allotting the the lots uh, um, individually to native people there was a whole lot of um, scrupulous, you know, vulture, you know, lending and that kind of stuff, where mm-hmm. where people weren't able to, to perhaps were encouraged to take out a loan and then couldn't pay it, so they lost their land. Mm-hmm. So within the within the reservation, this isn't just one massive, you know, action to take um, land within the reservation. These these end up happening happening piecemeal. Mm-hmm. So then, when you have a native territory with white people living inside, where they you know, are, are claiming ownership of that that land, legitimately or otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's where you have so many of these problems, where you have these jurisdictional fights. But, you know, but even when when it's not, even when it's native land, and, and it kind of gets into that the the, your, the last case that you've uh, you, you've mentioned um, in, in California. Mm-hmm. But we've seen it elsewhere. There was a case where, and, and I, I got, you have to forgive me. I can't remember if it was Dollar General or Family Dollar. It was one of those low budget uh, mm-hmm. retail outlets. There was a dispute, and I think it was in Alabama, the Cachada or something like that, where there was a, a case, and this is where the judges flat out said that you know this notion of superior sovereigns, and and this had to do with a non-native company on native land. Mm-hmm. Now the parcel was still owned by native uh, a native territory, and the, the dispute was whether a a the the nation, the tribe, could actually uh, um, bar a somebody who I think had a, like a, a, a child molestation case or uh-huh. whatever else could they could, could they remove him from the territory? Mm-hmm. And, and so, it, I mean, and this is, 
you know, and it's going to get to the final thing that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. when, when we actually delve into Roe v. Wade, because right. this is part of the problem with this with this notion of who, again, you know, who has superiority uh, uh, on a given parcel of land, mm-hmm. you know, especially with the battle between state and federal rights. And then when you have native rights, where does that fit in? Mm-hmm. Because we aren't in the system of what they call the system of federalism. There's no place that you can say, OK, there's nation, then there's state. And where does uh, county, municipality, where does tribal government fit into that system? Well, we don't. No, we don't fit into that system. We aren't a part of that system of federalism. And that still remains a very problematic uh, issue when it mostly because the problems are made for us. Which is what you come back to, you know, or or, all of these discussions sort of come back to is like, yeah, well, we wouldn't be having this problem if, if, you know, if X, Y and Z. But also it seems like it's because. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also uh, because the tribal court jurisdiction seems to be it's I mean, it is explicitly race based. Right. So it's like, well, you can have jurisdiction over people who we have decided are are Indian by race, but not over uh, white people, even though if they are on your land uh, legitimately or not. Right. You know, that's that is also something that is interesting to me that you have pointed out before. I think when we were talking about the Indian uh, Child Welfare Act that well, you know, and, violence, and violence against women. Yeah. The, the big, one of the biggest, the reason we have the missing and murdered indigenous women issue mm-hmm. the way we do it. And that was uh, yesterday was actually a uh, MMIW awareness day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason we have that issue is because we are not able to prosecute the 70% of the, of the men who commit these crimes against women who happen to be white. Yeah. We can't, we can't prosecute even if they're on our lands doing these things to our people on our territory. They, there's this, there has been always been this prohibition, even even when the, they they claim to recognize, you know, a tribal police officer or or a court system or, or you know whatever that, that mm-hmm. anything that emulates what they do, <laughs> they, they'll say, oh, you yeah, recognize it, but we're also, but we're not going to let you you know enforce laws against against non-native people. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes problematic on a bunch of different levels, and you know these cases about. The question the the superiority inferiority mm-hmm. of uh, of various jurisdictions because again it isn't defined it isn't defined in any legal document yeah. you know you just and, and you know one of the things that we talk about with with Roe v Wade is the fact that there is no law right it, it's just a court ruling yeah and because there's no underlying statute. And, and of course, there is no underlying statute relating to much of this stuff with Native people. It's just it, it, they're just bad rulings by courts. Yeah, I think it's because you were trying these courts are trying to pretend that the jurisdictions are governed by geography when, in fact, in every case, it sort of it comes down to race. And it's, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's bottom line. It's, it's, it, this is about embedded racism. And there's mm-hmm. no question about it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, abortion and this this leaked um, opinion. I mean, if abortion protections are, are indeed uh, kicked back to states, right, uh, and, and we know what's going to happen. And we know also John and I have talked about how, you know, the state legislatures are not necessarily representing the will of the people that they govern anyway. But for, you know, for the for the sake of brevity, right, if it's kicked back to states, what does that mean for for native people and for tribal nations that are within these states or spanning states? Like how much how much authority will they have to be able to provide abortions, you know, on within their nations? 
Well, for the most part, there aren't a whole lot of abortion providers within our nation. So, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's a lot of government contracting through Indian Health Services that that that, that pursues, you know, especially surgeries and you know and other more complicated. You know, we have clinics, but yeah. they're not in the. You know, I don't know. I couldn't tell you right now how many providers there are on native territories. And I still don't know if those providers would be um, forced to abide by state law. I mean, right. so it's, it's a, I mean, there's no question that black people and other marginalized black women and other marginalized, you know, Hispanic women would be the most adversely affected. I can't couldn't even tell you specifically as it, as it relates to abortion. Mm-hmm. But I will say any of this enhancement of states' rights goes back to what you mentioned earlier, the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's mm-hmm. where that battle is over, whether a state really has the power to uh, for, for child placement. And any one of the any of these cases that, that really try to enforce states' rights over national rights, and of course, we're not even in that debate. This these are always battles between states and federal government. Right. We're not even in the we're not even at the table in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also keep coming back and this is just sort of an an observation, but the idea is there is something that is so upsetting about the idea. I mean, it's upsetting to think of all, you know, everyone in this country being uh, potentially harmed, being ruled by, uh, you know, what is coming closer and closer to being a bizarre theocracy, right, that is dedicated to a sort of fundamentalist Christian line. But somehow... It is more upsetting to imagine that that rule being sort of applied to people who predated this government, right? Who predated the people who came here. It is absolutely. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the biggest issues, and and is that you know if you don't consider the fact that we had a culture that is thousands of years old and uh, and 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 it very much predates any of this stuff. I mean, and when I hear about this, well, the the Constitution didn't uh, have you know specific you know carve outs for this, this, and this. Well, it didn't have it for women to be able to even vote for crying out loud or be, right. or be citizens. So, you know, it, it didn't carve out protections against slavery or any of that stuff. So when I hear these originalists and these constructionalists say some of this stuff, I mean, it is, it is really absurd because yeah. the, hey, the John, Constitution was really flawed. John, I'm going to I want to keep you after this break. We have a hard break. We have to take a one uh, one o'clock, but stay on the line. I'll keep you. I'll get an update on the uh, fight between Seneca and New York State. We're going to come right back here. We'll take a quick break on political misfits and come right back and continue our conversation with John Kane. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou and continuing our conversation with John Kane of the Let's Talk Native podcast and Resistance Radio about the, uh, I don't know, real indignity of, of having the people who predate this colonial government and predate the, you know, the, the colonial the documents of it foundation uh, subjected to uh, sort of uh, increasingly theocratic rule. And so I, I wanted to ask you to, you know, feel free to finish your thoughts on that. And also, you know, is there a 
I don't know. Is there a, a, a way that this galvanizes Native communities? I, I don't really know how to ask that question without sort of doing the thing where you go, oh, well, black women are going to vote and save us from ourselves. But, you know, is is this somehow uh, the the. I don't know what's a better word than an indignity of this possibility, something that should be particularly galvanizing, or is it just sort of par for the course? Uh, it's par for the course. I, I don't think the overturning of Roe v. Wade is going to, um, I don't think it's going to galvanize, uh, you know, the, the pro-sovereignty movement on Native territories. Now, yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't, it doesn't factor in, but no, I don't think it's going to be that galvanizing. And, you know, look, I would love to see, women really stand up and empower themselves in some of these these fights and it's not even just about theocracy it's really about an ideology that has now been that has probably has less to do with actual you know fundamental christian yeah. christianity than it does with the far right um you know really trying to utilize these hot button issues to gain power yeah and do you really think that that, that many republicans really care really care about abortion i mean they yeah. don't they really don't care about children they don't care if they're locked in cages or or, yeah. or if uh you know they're try always trying to figure out ways to re restrict the amount of money that goes to you know for child welfare mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff i mean so they clearly don't care about children mm -hmm. i mean it's like once that once they're out of the womb uh you know well, let's hope they land on their feet kind of thing, you know? So. Well, Bernie, Bernie, or I'm sorry, Barney Frank once said that for the Republican Party, life began at conception and ended at birth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, or, or being pro-life, I mean, uh, certainly that's 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 the case. Because, look, the the arbitrary nature uh, of the, the right-wing view of the value of life definitely changes after— uh, and it, and to, to really pass a law or to change the laws um, that, you know, are going to adversely affect people of color more mm -hmm. than anybody else. And those are the people they care less about once, you know, as, as you know, once they're out of the womb. And mm -hmm. it, it's really it is so hypocritical that it's, that it's it's laughable in many ways. I mean, although it's not funny. Mm -hmm. No, and I think you're right to point out, you know, I mean, it is sort of it's presented as a, you know, the, these are our Christian values, right, whether that's put explicitly in the document or not. But I do think it, it represents, a, I think, uh, the opinion of even a, a minority of Christians and, uh, you know, a, a weird sort of political and religious hybrid that is increasingly, I think, unique to the United States. John, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is, is whether there's an update on, uh, you know, this, this fight that we have talked about between Seneca Nation and the state of New York. I know that um, Seneca decided to make a, a payment to have its accounts unfrozen. We talked about, you know, they're, they're in a dispute over how much Seneca Nation owes New York State for... Um, uh, it's gambling revenue. Um, and the last I saw is uh, warnings to prepare to see similar tactics undertaken in other states if this is allowed to stand. And so I wondered if there was an update on that case in general and also, you know, wh whether people are considering, you know, lawsuits to prevent states from taking these actions in the future. Uh, no, no. And in fact, it, it, is, it is no longer a case. This is a done deal. Yeah. And, and it's not a question about how much they owe it's really a question of whether whether they owe and and this really comes down to the uh, and i've talked about the indian gaming regulatory act being mm -hmm. a racist law and it clearly is i mm -hmm. mean this was you know, this was you know crafted out of thin air to restrict native gaming place gaming under the thumb not only of 
the uh, of the federal government, including the courts, but also um, under under state uh, authority. Mm-hmm. And of course, what it, what it created was this opportunity for states to to have a, a uneven playing field when it comes to what they could um, compel native territories to do that want to pursue the interest of gaming. Mm-hmm. And while it doesn't say anything in the law that allows the state to to tax or uh, force a payment on native territories, what, what, the, what the whole system created, including the legal councils that represent native territories, is native peoples have been convinced that the only way that they could pursue gaming was to induce the state to enter into a gaming compact. And to do that, they had to offer some things. And some of the, these revenue-sharing deals, like the one that Seneca's are, are so mired in, mm-hmm. were, were just, were just were actually fraud. I mean, mm-hmm. what the Seneca's paid state the state to do, essentially, with their revenue-sharing, was a promise that they wouldn't do Class three gaming machines in Western New York. And the problem with that is that the state couldn't do it anyway. It was against their law. It wasn't until 2013 that they changed their law. It wasn't until 2017 that the state's first casino opened up with class three machines. And that was 14. That was the whole term of the compact. Essentially, that was 14 years. They paid 1.4 billion dollars to stop the state from doing something they couldn't do anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, that, the whole thing was fraud. But what 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 the problem that ha- happened here is is the remedies. Instead of the Interior Department doing its job for the last 30 years, including under Deb Howland, because mm-hmm. the biggest update, which I'll get to in just a second, but what Kathy Hochul, the governor, the non-elected governor of the state of New York did, was rather than using a system that, that really would have called for a, a federal court seizure of, of, of a specific fund uh, uh, account, she froze all the segregation accounts. So they didn't just decide to... Uh, uh, you know, to pay this, they were forced to do it. This, yeah, and it's not hyperbole to suggest that they were uh, literally forced or extorted um, into into paying mm-hmm. this money. And mm-hmm. it's a half a billion dollars that, that Kathy Hochul just turned around and said, "Well, I'm going to build a football stadium with that." Right, money now. right, right. Um, and and so it, it is a dangerous precedent, and that's why you're hearing so many other territories saying, "Wait a second, mm-hmm. especially even in New York." I mean, you're talking about the Shinnecocks. We've got other native territories that are in gaming, some that are want to pursue gaming. And if you know, if New York State can just use state law, not even federal law, because that's what they use, they use state yeah. law to seize these accounts. Then it's it's a dangerous precedent. And how many other states may do the same thing as a way to pressure uh, pressures? But the the real update that I want to tell you is that they went through. The National Indian Gaming Association, which is now, I think they dropped the word national, so now it's just IGA, the mm-hmm. Indian Gaming Association, which is supposed to be the trade group. Right. And they had Interior Department folks there. And the bottom line is, the Senecas were told, we got nothing for you. The bottom line is, they said, we can't do anything. They said, we couldn't, couldn't even review your compact because even though it was altered in arbitration, unless the state certifies that it was altered, we can't even look at it, which is, which is a load of crap. I mean, the bottom line is the Interior Department is the agency that has oversight here. And they came up with more reasons why they choose not to do anything. To, to and Instead, they told the scientists, well, hey, help us with a, um, a rule change for the future because we can't do anything for you in the past or currently. And this is where I come back to my criticism of Deb Haaland. Don't you, don't you dare put a Native person into a seat and then tell me that that native person somehow has given me a seat at the table. Yeah. It's your table. It's your seat. And you just pluck somebody from the Democratic Party who happens to be native, stuck her in there and say, oh, there, see, we did a good thing. We, 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 we added some we added some shade 
to some of the folks that uh, you know that are a part of the Biden administration. I was always critical of of Deb Howland getting put in that spot because I knew this was this was going to happen. Yeah. She wasn't going to do anything more than previous interior departments have done, and that's proved that, that has definitely been proven out by their only own words here. Yeah, that is a really dangerous precedent that was set in New York, and uh, it will be definitely watching to see if it's attempted to be repeated anywhere else. John, we could talk about this stuff all day, as always, but we don't have that much time. So that was John Kane. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you want to hear more from him, you can go to the Let's Talk Native podcast or check out Resistance Radio on Pacifica Radio in New York. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We are going to turn now to other domestic issues and in particular talk about uh, homelessness, right? Because there have been uh, some sad stories recently. I mean, of course, throughout the course of the pandemic, right? Uh, the the impact of COVID-19, the impact of the poverty that it, it has caused and the effect on, uh, you know, America's existing homeless population and people who are really vulnerable has been kind of a front of mind topic. And last month, the New York Times had a really sad story on the rising tally of what it called lonely deaths on the street, as the headline put it. Official tallies put the U.S. homeless population at about 550,000, I think. Uh, it estimates that 13,000 homeless people die on the street each year. I want to talk about some of what this article revealed and, and get a sense of what the trajectory of homelessness in the United States is with our guest, Joel Siegel. He's National Campaign Director for the National Coalition for the Homeless Bring America Home Now campaign. It's a national campaign to end homelessness. He also co-authored the first bill in Congress to end homelessness in 2003 and wrote the first Jobs for All bill introduced in Cong Congress by uh, Representative John Conyers and then Representative Frederica Wilson. So, Joel, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. How are you doing? Great. I am hoping you can explain to us a little bit of the state and trajectory of homelessness in the U.S. because I keep encountering conflicting figures. Uh, and I just will explain a little bit, you know, from my perspective here in Washington, D.C., I've spent some time in Denver over the past couple of years. I, I walked through California, Oregon and Washington. And from what I see with my own eyes, it certainly looks like homelessness is increasing. Right. Tent, the, the proliferation of tent cities in Washington, D.C. over the last seven years really cannot be denied. But national data, I find, confirms that. Though homelessness is increasing, it isn't actually increasing as fast as the population is growing. So the rate of homelessness sort of looks like it's declining. However, according to the White House, the five areas with the most the, the largest populations of homeless people are D.C., New York, Hawaii, Oregon and California. These areas combined make up about half of all homelessness in the United States. And it does seem like Homelessness is rising in some of these areas, like this New York Times article that I've referenced before uh, says in L.A. County, the homeless population grew by 50 percent from 2015 to 2020. Homeless deaths have grown at a faster rate, increasing about 200 percent during the same period. And so I want to stop there. I, I know that's a lot of data to start with. And I want to ask you what you understand to be happening overall with homelessness in the United States and how we should understand how this issue is evolving. Sure. So, um, what, see, HUD does what's called a point of count each year. And they, I think they go to the shelters and they go to, like, people on the streets. But they don't, I don't think they include people who are living in a hotel 
Yeah. We're living doubled up. So it's it's just it's just not accurate. Yeah. Like it's a half a million, which is way too many people. But if there's a million point three homeless children each year who are homeless, that tells you right now something's wrong with the statistic. Yeah. Um, so I would I think it's more like seven million probably who are homeless. Yeah. Wow, that's so much more than five hundred thousand. Yeah, if you like, New York City alone has seventy six thousand people in the shelter system. Mm-hmm. There's eleven thousand plus shelters across the country. Mm-hmm. So the and and they turn away people from shelters. Mm-hmm. The waiting list for public housing where I live in Charlotte is thirty four thousand. Mm-hmm. Those people become homeless, but the, at the what we don't have, we don't have a federal comprehensive housing policy to end the homeless crisis once and for all. Because it was really started by Reagan between eighty one and eighty five. There was like a right around eighty billion dollar cut for public housing. The Faircloth Amendment, Senator Faircloth, it was in the early nineties, said no more funding for public housing. This is something that people don't realize. It's it. In other words, Congress can't fund any new public housing. So you got deplorable public housing all across the country. Mm-hmm. What happened was Reagan's view of the world and the Bush's view of the world, which is charity, not justice. Mm-hmm. Government doesn't have a role. Has caused untold misery, suffering from working people. You know, families, children, veterans, seniors, the disabled, mm-hmm. coming out of incarceration. I ran shelters for many years. It, it, it was just what I saw. It traumatized me. I was homeless as well for a few years, but that's what we're trying to do with the National Coalition for the Homeless, mm-hmm. build a, you know, the momentum and the Congress to end this problem and just provide housing and services and jobs. And, you know, there's an old way of doing government and mm-hmm. there's a new way. We need a new way. We got to, oh. you know, there's, there's no reason for it. It's the wealthiest country in the world. I broke the cycle here in Charlotte and it's wasn't that hard, you know? I want to talk about, uh, yeah, I mean, th- there's another little tidbit from this from this New York Times story that says in, in L.A. County, uh, while 207 homeless people find housing every day, 227 people become hom- homeless every day, which sort of illustrates the Sisyphean nature of trying to fight this this problem the way we've been fighting. And I want to point out, I'm glad that you brought up um, housing because, you know, when you look at where people are becoming homeless. It seems very clear that the cost of living and the cost of housing is a serious factor, right? L.A. is expensive. California is expensive. D.C. is expensive. New York is expensive. These are places where the cost of housing can really outstrip, um, you know, an average salary. And so it was I don't want to dismiss some of these angles that the the New York Times was exploring. It it made a lot of the proportion of single men who are homeless and and homeless men who are dying and kind of suggested that, you know, men don't have the emotional resilience to handle life crises alone or, or, you know, we have socialized men to handle these crises poorly. And I don't dispute it, but it just also seems like it seems fool, not foolish, but backward to embark on some projects to improve the emotional well-being of men while you ignore the fact that an apartment in some of these cities might cost like three quarters of of the pay you're bringing home every month. And so I wanted to ask if, you know, obviously I think that there should be more, we we should have more uh, mental, you know, 
accessible mental health care in this country. Of course, you know, I'm all for uh, men getting in touch with their emotional selves and becoming emotionally resilient. But like it does seem to be placing some of this burden on on an individual to self-actualize when the problem is simply that people cannot afford housing. That's right. It's a government. It's a government failure. It's a societal failure. It's a community failure. There's also structural racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I used to run shelters. I used to run emergency winter shelters. And I remember the first night, I was like, three-fourths of the men had hard hats and tools. So I was told these were people who couldn't make it in the shelter system uptown. And they were just wrong. Then you had your learning disabled. You had some mental illness. Majority of the men, though, were out of work. Yeah. When I was in Tent City, which I busted up, and there were families, you know, in the tents and asking me to take them to work. Um, it, it has a lot to do with the systems breakdown, uh, not having transportation to a job, not having the training or the qualifications for the job, not having a salary on your record, housing being incredibly unaffordable, which is why you got to have public housing, right? Mm-hmm. Public housing. Sometimes they will ask you for three months rent up front. Yeah. If you're, especially if you're black or you might have a credit problem. So this is, once again, there should be more housing available than those looking for it for the richest country in the world. As somebody who's been in government for you know over three decades and worked in this field, mm-hmm. I found the biggest problem wasn't the emotional resilience of the men. I found the problem was the lack of emotion from the system. Right. Lack of emotion from people who run mental health facilities and dump people in the streets. Yeah. Lack of emotional sensitivity towards someone who gets surgery, doesn't have housing, they throw them in the street. You come out of jail, nowhere to go except the shelter, a mental health or a drug and alcohol treatment clinic, nowhere to go. Yeah. Uh, not having the emotional uh, sensitivity to say, gee, maybe if we don't evict this family, maybe we can pay their rent like they do in France and Europe and then help them with a job. Then like, I think it's the, I think it's that America is, is a nation of sociopaths. And I mean that sociopath meaning somehow feeling and compassion and empathy got crushed out of us in the name of the free market and capitalism and not making waves. I mean, I've had to take over parks with homeless people. I've had to you know, do press conferences and town hall meetings demanding that these people who were in the tents in Charlotte get a hotel and yeah. all the radical to do that. I'm like, no, I don't want these people to freeze to death. So. That's why you got to have a grassroots movement to end this problem. It's a a needless problem, by the way. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you, I mean, I I want to ask you about the Bring America Home Now campaign. And I also want to ask, you know... I have a question here that says, what are what are cities and states doing that, that does work and that doesn't work? But I also want to ask, you know, is this a problem for for cities and states to be solving or is there more of a role for the federal government here in, in addressing homelessness? It's got to be it's got to be all three that the federal government is the largest distributor of wealth in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be like 80 to 100 billion dollars that goes to cities and towns across the country to build. You know, single room occupancy units to, to renovate buildings that are sitting there vacant, mm-hmm. uh, housing vouchers. But we got to build new, what I call scattered site public housing. Those are smaller public housing units. But you got to have a jobs program. I wrote the Build Jobs for All when I was with John Conyers, mm-hmm. developing public works jobs program. And and you, you got to have a jobs for all program because that is the hardest thing to find 
uh, but the most important thing to have. Mm-hmm. So there's so many people who cannot find a job. You know, if you you know if you had a high school degree, we're going to go work work at a bank or. We have these tech industries and we have the financial industries, but they need to, they need to really do something like a green jobs, you know, massive green jobs program where mm-hmm. people who are low income or semi skilled can get a skill banging in a solar panel in a school or a building. But what we've done is we basically have said we'll let capitalism and the free market work for a group of people who they have college degrees and graduate school degrees, but you know for you know, millions of other people who can't quite cut it because they might have a mental or physical challenge or they keep, they don't have a bus ticket. We'll mm-hmm. put them in shelters and, you know, let them destroy themselves by drinking and drugging to anesthetize the pain. Mm-hmm. But I saw, I saw like a dual, kind of a dual economy, one for the well-heeled and educated and privileged, the other, uh, you know, already disadvantaged by growing up in, you know, a trailer park or a ghetto or whatever and mm-hmm. having the opportunities that other people have to be in the free market or to get a job. So what the comfortable class does is they condemn people and say it's their fault and they're lazy and all that, which but they don't know anything because they've never been to a shelter. They've never talked to people who are homeless because we don't do that anymore. We'd rather just come up with a judgment based on fantasies and emotions that are based on intellectual confusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the, tell us about the uh, Bring America Home Now campaign. Sure. Uh, it's from the National Coast for the Homeless. Bring America Home campaign is an attempt to end homelessness by introducing federal legislation that will end homelessness by galvanizing you know, the largest movement we've ever seen um, in history uh, to end homelessness. But it's very comprehensive. It's also health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know income, um, so it's a comprehensive campaign, and we're in 18 cities. Uh, we're going to start on in Congress in the next few weeks, and um, but you know without federal legislation, you can't cannot you cannot end homelessness. So mm-hmm. what we're working on now would be 500,000 housing vouchers uh, for people who are experiencing homelessness. That Maxine Waters has that bill, a million in the next two years. But ultimately, we're going to have to introduce our own legislation, that mm-hmm. homelessness once and for all. But then you got to have, like, child care for the woman. How, how can you expect a woman to to work without child care? Mm-hmm. There's also sexism, and we're talking about homelessness, which is, well, you know, the women. Yeah, I mean, a large percentage of people who are homeless are women. Mm-hmm. They, need, they need child care. Or how, how can you find a job without child care? So the, we have to introduce legislation to get to the root causes of it. And that, that's what this campaign's about. Yeah, I mean, you're obviously, you know, I was, I was looking at some of the interventions that, that cities are trying, but you can't, you know, you can't build a, a cheap or subsidized housing fast enough to accommodate the people who are being pushed out of housing that's just become unaffordable if you don't address, you know, the issues of wages, jobs, uh, the affordability of health care and everything else that sort of takes a big chunk out of your paycheck. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that this is a, a comprehensive campaign. Joel, why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find uh, find more about what you're doing? Yeah, they can just go, you know, go to National Coalition for the Homeless, mm-hmm. go to the website, um, and go to the Bring America Home Now campaign. And, of course, we need donations, but, you know, it, p- politicians and elected officials cause the homeless problem. Mm-hmm. So we, the people, have to lobby and advocate, uh, you know, at the highest levels of power and get them to fund affordable housing and comprehensive services and 
We got the money. We just don't have the political will. So this is an I, the idea is to get a campaign, just like what Martin Luther King did in the 60s, what I did with the universal health care effort. You know, there wasn't Obamacare or Medicare for all until we, I organized uninsured people across the country. Mm-hmm. We're organizing uh, the unhoused and homeless people all across the country. That's the cool thing about the campaign is being led by people who are currently or formally experiencing homelessness. That's why it's, it's a very powerful movement so far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That was Joel Siegel, National Campaign Director for the National Coalition for the Homeless. Th- thanks so much, Joel. Sure. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's time for Politics Friday, which we're actually going to start moving, I think, to Wednesday. Um, just because all the primaries are on, are on Tuesdays, and so the news is fresh. Uh, well, with that said, we're still going to tell you about some of the most important and, I believe, exciting races across the country. We're joined by Ray Valencia, who is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of the show. But Ray, before we uh, get to Politics Friday, I just wanted to give an update on this terrible explosion in Havana, Cuba. There are four people dead and 19 people injured so far. Um, We heard from Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, who said that everybody is fine. uh, And it seems that this thing was caused by a gas leak. So this was not. A terrorist attack. Thank God. Okay. Politics. I know you wanted to start with Nebraska. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Pennsylvania, but let's start with Nebraska. What in the world is going on there? I would have never thought to pay any attention to anything happening in Nebraska, but you've convinced me that this is worth talking about. Uh, I was going to talk about Nebraska a little further down, but yeah, let's go. Okay. Okay. Nebraska. The the reason why I'm looking at Nebraska is because there's a governor's race in Nebraska. And since the leak dropped, the uh, Supreme Court Mm. uh, decision, the leak on Roe v. Wade, uh, the governor's races are going to be very important because they're top of the ticket Mm -hmm. and it's going to draw out more turnout than, you know, just a, a midterm I, race I with, with Congress. But now with this leak, I think it may increase turnout even more. Yeah. And the reason why I think that is because the legislative remedy for a reversal Roe v. Wade in the Congress with the filibuster is going to be really difficult, if not impossible. Uh, governors are going to be very important. They have the ability to veto bills, the abortion bills, particularly the trigger bills that will become in effect once Roe v. Wade is reversed. So I think the thing that I'm really curious about is whether the centrist Republicans that are on the Republican tickets on the primaries, if they are going to have more of a chance, because this has been the battle for Republicans, right? Uh-huh. They've got the Trump, uh, they right. got the Trump endorsees that are typically pretty conservative, yep. and they're going up against the centrist Republicans. Now maybe the centrist Republican might have a chance because I don't know, John and Michelle, there are a million abortions a year. Those numbers are coming down, but I anticipate that they're not all Democrats. 
Right. Right. And right. so once you have a right taken away, then it becomes very obvious that you got to start looking at your elected officials. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because there was an article in the Washington Post this morning about Larry Hogan, the the moderate, I would call him the liberal Republican uh, uh, governor of Maryland. And Larry Hogan wants to reclaim the Republican Party from the Trump populists. He says that things have gotten out of hand. First, it was the evangelicals. Then it was the Tea Party. Now it's the populists. He wants to return the Republican Party to what it was in the 1960s and 1970s, where you had liberals like Silvio Conti or Nelson Rockefeller or Charles Percy, you know, people who who could work with Democrats and got legislation passed. And we didn't have these culture wars to fight over. Right. And all those guys have just been run out of town recently. Yeah, there are no liberal Republicans Mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, besides Larry Hogan. And, uh, you know, Hogan has been talking about running for president. He knows that he doesn't have a prayer, but that would at least give him a, a soapbox from which he could try to push his party Back toward the center. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, and Ohio is interesting. What did we learn from Ohio? Okay, Trump endorsement for Vance helped him, right? Yeah. But it, it sure didn't did. help the governor running, right? The the Ohio, let's see, who won in Ohio? It was Devine. That, yeah. He's the incumbent. DeWine. DeWine, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And he uh, overcame the Trump endorsement uh, that I, I don't even remember the guy who Trump endorsed, but uh, Devine, <laughs> he won. So uh, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out with this tension between the Republican centrist and the populist. Uh, Matt Dolan, who was like you pointed out, he was right. gaining in the polls. Yeah, he was. He's the more centrist, reasonable Republican. Mm-hmm. He did really well in cities, Cleveland, uh, large population areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an area where Republicans have not been really focused on. They've been focused That's more true. in the rural especially areas, in Ohio. Mm-hmm, especially yeah. in Ohio. Yeah. And for the Democrats, it's been the reverse. Right. Mm-hmm. So they've yes. been focusing on uh, major urban areas. In mm-hmm. fact, Schumer even said in Pennsylvania, for every one uh, rural Pennsylvania Democrat, we lose or voter, we lose. We'll gain two more in the cities because that's where the focus is. Well, Ohio is very much like Pennsylvania in that respect. You know, James Carville famously said that Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in the center, which is true. Uh, The Democrats don't even campaign outside of the the Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Erie and Scranton city areas. And there's been a lot of pushback on uh, on by progressives on the major party leaders to mm-hmm. stop doing that, to focus yes. on rural voters. You've got to focus on rural and voters. I tell you now with the reversal of row, we need those uh, mm-hmm. swing voters. Mm-hmm. We need those rural voters. And it's going to need to be. The well, I was going to make the point that in Ohio, we see the same kind of campaigning where the Democrats campaign actively in Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, Akron, and a little bit in Cincinnati. But Cincinnati trends Republican. Um, now they're going to have to start campaigning all over the state. Yeah, they're going to have to go to Newcastle. They're going to have to go to Cranberry. They're going to have to go to these places that are outside mm-hmm. of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, they're going to have to. Yeah. Places like Newcastle and Sharon 
um, and Erie used to be solidly Democratic, even if they were a little bit conservative. And now they're ruby red. And that's because of the working class mm-hmm. and the fact that the Democrats have really kind of alienated that group of folks. You are um, exactly right. Let, let's keep talking about Pennsylvania okay. for a minute. Uh, you and I were talking offline yesterday. I'm going to pull it up right now. There mm-hmm. were there were several polls that were released yesterday. One, two, three polls that were released yesterday from Franklin and Marshall University that are absolutely fascinating. The easy ones are for the Democrats, and and they're far less interesting. Uh, They have Fetterman, the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman at 53%, and Congressman Connor Lamb at 14%. Wow, he's crushing it. Fetterman's just running away with this race. Lamb doesn't have a prayer. Uh, I don't even think they have another debate scheduled it's not even worth the, the trouble. Fetterman's going to win that race. But the Republican race is fascinating. We've talked about Dr. Oz. So here's Dr. Oz. And you know my beef with Dr. Oz. He's not even from Pennsylvania. And he, number one, he's Turkish. He's a Turkish citizen, for this God's sake. This is a racism hour now on, on political misfits now. <laughs> Welcome the to the ethnic divisions you know? 15 minutes. I, I can't imagine. He's a Turkish citizen. He was in the Turkish Special Forces, and he wants to represent Pennsylvania in the U.S. Senate. No, no that's, that's not, not I'm going to get you a little Dr. Oz for Senate pen. <laughs> Wait, I'll, I'll wear it with my um, free Constantinople T-shirt. Um, Dr. Oz is from New Jersey, right? His house is in New Jersey, and he only bought real estate in Pennsylvania six weeks before he announced his candidacy just so he could run for the Senate. So here's the lineup. You have Dr. Oz leading with only 18 percent. 18 percent. He's in first place. McCormick at 16, Barnett at 12, uh, and then everybody else doesn't matter. Sands, Bartos, Gale. A little bit. Say again. Looks like McCormick's gaining on Oz a little bit. McCormick is the one who um, has most seriously attacked Oz in the uh, debates. And he's a Pennsylvanian. He's actually lived and in he's Pennsylvania. A Pennsylvanian. And he's an elected official in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. You know, in this last Republican debate, debate, it was so interesting because they 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 all ganged up on Oz saying that he wasn't a real Republican. He used to be an independent. And he was saying, no, he wasn't really for Trump back in the day, right? No. He's yeah. never met Trump. And he's for the Affordable Care Act. Well, he was a, he was for the Affordable Care Act, which he's now against. He was pro-choice which he's flipped on. He's now pro-life uh, or I hate saying pro-life, anti-abortion, anti-abortion. or anti-choice. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's flipped so that he would be a better fit for Pennsylvania's conservative voters. But I mean, so, so which way is the wind blowing? That's the that's where you're going to find Dr. Oz, whatever direction the wind happens to be blowing in. And Republicans, at least in the primary, simply don't trust him. Here's a guy who has unlimited resources, right, to to make major advertising uh, spends, and he's polling at 18%. What do you think of that? Well, I think Fetterman's going to win this race. I I think Oz is, uh, I I don't know. I mean, it just probably because of his name recognition. I guess that really helps you. It helps you more than it should. And Oz said something that was so incredibly disingenuous the other day. He said that that Fetterman's a racist, right? That Fetterman doesn't like black people. And you know, you know why he said this? Because something like 15 years ago, Fetterman was at home in Braddock. He heard gunshots 
And, citizen's arrest thing. Yeah. And he, he said the, the guy was wearing a hoodie. He didn't know if he was black or white or from the moon or what he was. The race had nothing to do with it. There's a guy shooting a gun. He's running past Fetterman's house. Fetterman grabs him and holds him for the cops. How's that racist? No. Totally but Oz going up against Fetterman, I'm just envisioning that in the general election. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In the in the Pennsylvania governor's race, you know, we're we're seeing the same kind of situation. The Democratic race is just not interesting because no, that's uh, a lock in. Yeah. Josh, yeah. what's his name is just running away with it. Shapiro. Shapiro. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, on the Republican side, Mastriano. 20% is in first place. Yeah. With and 20%. And Barletta, who yeah. has been in Congress forever, and everybody in the state knows, is polling at 11%. And I, I just saw don't get today it. that there's going to be some kind of Trump rally for Oz. And we're looking for the possibility of the endorsement drop for Pennsylvania for the governor. For the governor? Yeah. That's going to be interesting. That's going to be interesting. But just to uh, let you know, the guy that's leading. Um, Mastriano, mm-hmm. he is the author of the heart, heartbeat bill. Mm-hmm. He's a strong advocate for it. So and, he, and he's proposed it several times. He's proposed it several times. So you're the voter in uh, Pennsylvania and you're up, you know, that's going to be. Pennsylvania is one of those very odd states. There are only six in America that literally don't have any abortion laws on the books. Crazy as that sounds. Oh, that's right? interesting. Yeah. No abortion laws on the books. Nothing. Nothing to encourage them, nothing to deny them, nothing at all. It's going to be very interesting to uh, to watch. So what else are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at the protests that are emerging since the the leak. And will those protesters turn into voters come Election Day? Will people march to the ballot box? That's I, what I'm curious I, about. I totally agree. And I have to tell you, I'm I'm so excited to see the polls. It's too early. Right. The story just broke a few days ago. We don't know what the polls are going to say. And what I'm hearing from on the ground among activists and Mm -hmm. stuff I'm following on social media is that major fundraising is happening right now. I mentioned to uh, Michelle a couple of days ago. Actually, it was the day that the the day after the leak came out, I had gotten four fundraising emails that day. So far today, I've gotten eight. And so this is going to be a major fundraising opportunity. It was fundraising translate into election results and movement, right? I we think don't that's know. The question. It translates yeah. into advertisement. Uh, yeah, purchase. but as we said, are they going to advertise effectively or are they going to advertise in media that are that are obsolete, that just simply don't reach people and don't move people anymore? As, the, you know, they have been, the Democrats specifically have been accused of uh, in the most recent election. And so, yeah, where is all that money? Is that money going to actually go toward galvanizing people to come out and do something? Again, accepting the premise that voting more Democrats into Congress is doing something about this, which I think is very, very questionable. But yeah, is that or is it just going to sort of get into the sort of Democratic consultancy cycle? Well, I think with the activist groups, it's going to result in more of a ground game. Now, the party politics, absolutely. That's just going to be a bunch of ad buys, a waste of money. If you want to give your money to something this election season, find the groups that are, you know, Based upon activism, you know, and that's where you and put working your money. at the grassroots and working the at the, you know, municipal level, level and the state level for sure. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, I've got to give the daily uh, Madison Cawthorn update. Oh, what's oh, happening yes. now? Well, I, I checked politicsone.com. Politics One, if, if people are interested, it is not a user-friendly website. Okay. Uh, but that's okay, because if you're a, a political junkie, that's where you want to go. It covers literally every state in America. I mean, every, sorry, every race in America, whether it's governor, uh, lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, state secretary of state, all the Senate races, all the House races. It's run by a guy named Ron Gunsberger, who was a buddy of mine in college. We were in the college Democrats together, and now he's a senior advisor to Governor Hogan. So, Ron, we used to make fun of Ron because he he worked for the Ruben Askew presidential campaign in 1994, 1984, rather. And I think Ron was... The only guy in America who voted for Ruben Askew. He was the governor of Florida back at, back in the day. Um, Can I give you a Madison Cawthorn update? Sorry, oh, I just started. As you started talking about the website, I decided to check in on our favorite uh, firemadison.com, which right. it's hosted My via new video. Uh, website. They're down. What? Website suspended. What? Yeah, I know. They were the ones Free that Fire had the, the video yesterday. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, they've been suspended. The website is under maintenance. Uh, under maintenance because they... Maybe it showed Madison Cawthorn's butt yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. Well, I was going to say, Madison Cawthorn, a, a new poll came out this morning, um, local to the district, and it has Madison Cawthorn holding at 38%, but uh, Chuck, um, I forget his last name, the state senator, uh, moving up slightly to 23% from 21%. So remember, you and I were talking yesterday. North Carolina has this odd electoral law that that you only have a runoff if nobody gets 30 percent. Usually it's in most states, it's 50 percent. In North Carolina's case, it's 30 percent. So all he needs to do, all Cawthorn needs to do is maintain a lead over 30 percent. And he goes to the general election and and a Democrat's not going to win that district oh, it's, it's so red. heavily republican yeah, it's really republican yeah so well, you know he may he may pull this out he may be fodder for some time now yeah yeah so we'll see i i'm so enjoying that race I, it's just so bizarre and you know i was reading the new york post today talking about bizarre now now the thing is and because this is how low we've all fallen uh now the thing is that um uh Marjorie Taylor Greene has deformed feet. Oh, who right? cares? So who pe- cares? I know, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people are, are tweeting now pictures of Marjorie Taylor Greene's feet. So what it is is she has webbed feet, which some people have. It's a, quite a common birth defect. But uh, You what, sure they're not hooved? <laughs> not that, cloven? <laughs> I, I, I've made that joke more than once. Um, but now people are saying, well, no, they're not webbed feet. Uh, she's uh, one of the lizard people. That she's been trying to warn us about, you know, that ha- that came down wow, from another planet. What the QAnon and people think of that? Yeah, she's a lizard mm. person. Wow! Oh my God! This is actually, boy, I guess takes one to know one, right? She's a defector from right. the lizard from people. From the lizard come, people, come from another, who or, always or always cover. end up, you know, one hour into the lecture by the famed <laughs> academic. Oh, oh, the lizard people ha- just happen to all be Jews, and you're like, oh, it's the same old, see? same old thing over and over. But did you see this, John? Forgive me. I, I hope I'm not repeating something you've just said. Do you see Mike Pompeo has held a security uh, briefing about Mehmet Oz? 
and his like the national security concerns his no. campaign or yeah pompeo no, tell me. held a briefing mike pompeo uh i think just today had a press briefing uh it it, it was arranged by oz's opponent uh pompeo is supporting dave mccormick in okay, in the yeah. pennsylvania yeah. race that, that, that but mike sense. pompeo came out and, you know, was like, this is an issue. He's engaged in the Turkish political process. This has raised a lot of issues in my mind about uh, his uh, his judgments and his priorities. You know, one of the things that I've heard from Republicans, and it's just simply not true, is they'll say, well, Bernie Sanders is an Israeli citizen. What? Like, no, he's not. No, he's not. This is a rumor that got started about 10 years ago. It was just a, a, a canard thrown out there by Republicans. Gross. No, that's gross. There are no dual nationals in the United States Senate. Zero. None. So to say, well, because Bernie Sanders is, is an Israeli citizen, it's OK if Dr. Oz is a Turkish citizen. That's so no. weird. Yeah. So Seriously. Mike Pompeo is saying, look, we need to understand the scope and depth of his relationship with the Turkish government. Ouch. Mm. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's going to uh, put him at odds with uh, Mike Flynn, who has been who has worked for the Turkish government and offered to help kidnap Mehmet Gulen. Um, But that's a whole nother story. Okay. Okay. (laughs) What else you guys got? That's all I have on politics. That's it. Yeah. But but we've got news of the weird. Oh, all right. That we can we can kind of uh, transition into. So. A couple of weird things happened. Uh, The first story I got out of the Washington Post on Monday. All right. Uh, Do you remember Garth Brooks? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, he was he was a very big deal for a long time. And then he kind of went away. Now he's come back. Right. So he he did a concert last weekend in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And Baton Rouge is the home of Louisiana State University. They have one of these, you know, typical big college football stadiums where there aren't individual seats. They're just uh, benches and you sit, you know, butt to butt. So this stadium holds 102,000 people. He filled every single seat. Wow. And the concert. I see Garth Brooks. I go to Garth Brooks for sure. I don't know if I would pay for it, but if someone invited me, absolutely. I could even sing along. The concert was so loud that it registered on the Richter scale. That is that's kind of cool. I am delighted for Garth Brooks. That <laughs> upsets me as someone who thinks that movie theaters are a little bit too loud. Like, I wish they would turn it down just a tiny bit. Right. Can you imagine being in there without earplugs? And, you know, the crazy thing is. That, that was 100% only during uh, I've Got Friends in Low Places. Yeah. Right. That's that a good song. <laughs> I know. <laughs> in this case, he's got a song called Colin Baton Rouge. Oh. Right? oh. So he saved that for his encore. And all 102,000 people were singing and stomping that and cheering. That like a religious experience. <laughs> I am sad that I wasn't at that concert. That sounds beautiful. I, we're ending the week on such happy news, John. My own comment on this is that it now ranks him up there with Spinal Tap as the loudest band in history. Did they turn it up to 11? 11. Yeah, that's beautiful. Congratulations, Garth Brooks. loudest really band. rooting for the underdog here. There you Garth. go. <laughs> Everybody needs a hobby. And I wish I had thought of this because this sounds like so much fun. Mm -hmm. Christina Warren is a busy software developer, but in her free time, she collects the swag of epic corporate failure. Wonderful. She collects things from 
Enron to the Fire Festival to her latest acquisition, which is a pop, pop socket branded with the CNN Plus logo. Can I ask what a pop socket is? <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those little puppets that looks like a sock. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I have what, some CNN Enron Plus stuff logo? from when they went out of business. Yeah. Wow. I bought some. I bought some Aaron chairs. On eBay from Enron. Yeah, when they went out of business. Those are probably worth money. Oh, they were so much money back then. You know, like an airing share is like a thousand bucks, right? And I got them for 600 bucks. Nice. Uh, Yeah. The Quibi keychain or something. She she said she isn't interested in milk toast meltdowns. She wants stuff from epic corporate failures. Um, She gave an interview to NPR and she said... um, she wants the stuff from the companies that made a big splash and then sank to the bottom of the barrel. Here's like a the, quote. Like the Blackberry. She said, yeah, like Blackberry. I'm looking at the ones that were flying high too close to the sun, which makes it funnier to be out someplace wearing a shirt from one of these things. Mm-hmm. Unquote. Um, but she doesn't want to ever spend more than $75 on any one item. She, right. she avoids counterfeits, which is wise. And she said that her white whale, the thing that she hasn't yet been able to obtain, is something from Theranos, which I think is so cool. Oh, yeah. She says, I would even take a pen, like, you know, like a ballpoint pen. Sure. I'd want want one of those, too. Like, what what a fun way to kill some time. I would totally do that. I would love to come in with, with a CNN Plus shirt on. I'm gonna <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Looking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I they would, too. They have to exist. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You, do you remember during the dot-com bubble, um, pets.com, there was, their, their mascot was a sock puppet. And uh, the sock puppet sold at, like, Sotheby's or, or Christie's for tens of thousands of dollars because it was the famous... Pets.com. I mean, I'm sure you puppet. could get some WeWork branded stuff pretty soon. Oh, or, yeah. I mean, right now you could get it. And it's uh, a nice it'll be, office it'll furniture. Fit the you know, pretty I, soon. I read an article about WeWork. One of the mistakes that they made was they actually purchased the real estate that they're in. Yeah. Rather than just renting the space. And then if the neighborhood didn't work out, you could just shut it down and move it somewhere else. Now they, they're stuck with these buildings that nobody wants to rent it. Do you guys want a bird flu update or do you want to wait yeah. till after news of the weird? Is oh. it fun and weird? Nope. Let's wait till after. Okay, I'll do one more. Or I have two more. Tell me them. Okay. Eric and Athena Tensar bought their home. I heard this also on on, uh, NPR the other day. They bought their home abutting the Indian Pond Country Club Golf Course in Kingston, Massachusetts, for the beautiful views. Of the golf course. Of the golf course. Where people play golf. You've made it in life if you live on a golf course. Where people play golf. With these little balls that are hard as rocks. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they ended up suing the golf course over 600 plus golf balls that left dents and shattered windows in their home over the last five years. The couple said that they've long since stopped repairing shattered windows, instead just covering them with plastic, oh, which no. seems stupid to me. <laughs> Quote, when it hits, it sounds like a gunshot. We're always on edge. Uh, that's uh, I don't know, complaints. man. I don't know if you can have the views without the balls. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, well, the bad thing is caveat emptor there. The bad thing is, is two in two parts. Number one, uh, they won four point nine three million dollars in damages. Most of that is uh, uh, pain and suffering. Right. But the other bad thing is that the golf course was there first. 
Yeah, well, that's what I, I don't understand. Like, this doesn't seem to be. You build, like you build an apartment building right next to a, a, a music club and then you sue the club for being too loud. Exactly. It's like, what do you, what, do, what did you expect yeah. when you what did, did you that? Think? Yeah. I mean, surely there are some like reasonable limits to how far you should expect golf balls to be flying outside of the golf course. But, sure. Uh, I saw yeah. a TikTok video the other day of this guy uh, who lives along a golf course. And for fun, when people hit balls into his yard, um, he'll lay down next to the ball and pretend to be unconscious <laughs> <laughs> just to see what people do, how they react. And most people are like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Are you OK, buddy? And yeah. they'll slap his face. Some of them just run away. Oh, no. Yeah, they'll just run away. Terrible. OK, last one. Butler County, Ohio, one of my least favorite places in America. Hmm. Both my ex-wives are from Ohio. Yeah. What the heck was I thinking? Anyway, Darby Bobby, a Lakota school board member in Butler County, Ohio, which is where Cincinnati is, is located, was asked to resign on April 27th after she apparently mistakenly directed visitors on her Bobby for Lakota Facebook page to a porn site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of body B-O-D-D-Y. She wrote B-O-D-Y. Oh, no. And it's apparently a Native American porn site. What? Yeah. Oh, we've just, I've, a bunch of people have just clicked open a new tab. <laughs> <laughs> On April 26, she created a post about topics being taught in classrooms and included a link, but she spelled it wrong. Oh, no. Other school board members recognized that it was a mistake, but said even though it was a mistake, she was negligent. The board president, Linda O'Connor, called the error absolutely unacceptable. And in response, Body said, this is a ruse. It's a political ruse. I did nothing wrong. And she called the meeting a circus designed to shut down conservatives. To tell you the truth, it yeah. probably was. Yeah. This sounds yeah. like a legitimate mistake. Yeah. Uh, before the website incident, Body had been the subject of a petition signed by 1,500 people seeking her censure for what they called, quote, continued disrespect and aggression toward Superintendent Matt Miller. And in response, Body said that she will never resign She's with an emphasis on never. Yeah. She's going to uh, tough it out. All right. Um, I have an update on the bird flu outbreak in the United States, which is, I guess, weird, but mostly uh, gross and sad. Uh, the bird flu virus that is sweeping the U.S. right now is on its way to becoming our worst ever. And guess how many chickens have already been killed as a result? Uh -oh. Chickens and turkeys. Guess how many? It's got to be we like talked about over a million. Oh, we talked it about there five were five million, million in one week. go at one farm yeah. last week. So right now it is 37 million <gasps> oh my chickens God. and turkeys. You know, I, I saw them do this on CNN the other day. You know, they, they put these little chicks, they put them in a grinder. Yeah, chicks they just toss in a grinder. But the grown-up ones, that you, uh, they suffocate them in high temperatures. So just suffocate 5 million chickens in a barn. That's cruel. Or uh, just cover them with poisonous form, foam. Sorry. What? Yeah. It's disgusting. And you say it's cruel. Yeah. I mean, the cruelty you sort of pre- predates the actual death, right? The cruelty is in just jamming animals into these cages, you know, genetically manipulating them to grow in ways that they weren't designed to grow and then yeah. jamming yeah. them into these cages by the millions. They're never allowed outside and right. just, you know, no, they never see lay some eggs. I mean, it's just awful. It is a truly, I, I don't know how you can, I understand that food costs money and people don't have a lot of money, but truly like 
I don't know how you can look at the conditions these animals live under and not and not feel enough to at least try yeah. to stop supporting that industry, uh, as disgusting as it is. So, yeah, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we were watching these things go down as a result of supply chain issues. Yes. Resulting from the pandemic mm-hmm. and people being un- unable to work. And now just a couple of years later, you know, just wow. again, these are li- these are living animals. Yeah, they are. Just being disposed yes. of by the millions in the cheapest and cruelest ways you can just imagine. It's just awful they get to. Sick. Yeah, because if one bird tests positive for bird flu, the you have to destroy your whole flock. Yeah. And again, maybe we just maybe we shouldn't have ten million chickens on a farm. That's right. You know what I mean? Like maybe this is not how we should be producing protein in yeah. the United States. You're There's also been a, right. a, a little bit of an update before we go on the explosion in Cuba. And now the death toll has been raised to eight. It looks like eight people killed and 30, 30 injured, 13 missing is oh what I'm seeing right now. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, in addition to saying she was okay um, on uh, Facebook, Medea Benjamin said that uh, there, that Code Pink is planning a big trip to Cuba from September 14th to September 21st later this year everybody's welcome to go it's going to be a big deal it's it's going to be to um to try to uh, uh improve and enhance relations between the american and cuban people uh to celebrate cuban culture and to uh celebrate the career of langston hughes who had uh, a lot of connections to cuba i've never been to cuba i'd like to go i would like to go too have we remarked I actually it all put on, it on my, ca- my let's calendar. Let's plan a field trip. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, have we remarked at all on Anthony Blinken getting COVID? No. And it might be Good the point. White House And, we, and we've got center. just enough time to. Yeah, we've got. Oh, I mean, super but, spreader event. I mean, yeah. that is what people yeah. were saying. Who knows if he no, got it Trevor, there? Who knows if he spread it there? But yeah. Yeah. And uh, and we have the end of uh, Bye Bye Jen Psaki. We have yeah. the new White House press secretary, uh, Katrine. Sorry, what is her name again? I just lost it. Katrine uh, Jean Pierre. Jean Pierre. Yeah. Uh huh. New press secretary, first uh, black woman, first openly gay press mm-hmm. secretary. So. And already the conservatives are jumping up and down because she lives with CNN's Washington uh, bureau chief. Well, that is more <laughs> of a consideration <laughs> possibly than anything, you know, than her gender or her sexual orientation. But I mean, of course, why? Why should it be otherwise at this point, considering the state of our press? Yeah, we got to go. That's it. Thanks to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of Ray Valencia, John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend. <laughs>